Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 39. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Niels Karstrup Larsen from Dunn Capital. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Morning. Hi. Well, look, I just want to say right at the top of the show, because I sometimes forget at the end that I want to say a big thank you for all our listeners and for people who have been with us right from the beginning and for all the new listeners that are joining, because there are more and it's really fantastic to have you on board. So thank you to everyone who's been a long term listener and thank you to everyone who's joining. So, Niels, let's get down to it. Tell us a bit about yourself and uh, tell us a bit about Dunn Capital. Sure, absolutely. And uh, thanks for, for having me here. So, I mean, a little bit about myself. I, I actually have a, a sort of a trading background, meaning I, I started out in the financial markets back in the 80s, uh, trading bonds, trading government bonds. And since I'm Danish as as my birth country, I, um, I traded Danish government bonds and uh, definitely was a, a great uh, learning experience and a way to get into the financial markets. And uh, later on, uh, ventured into sort of uh, entrepreneurship, started a small uh, investment company uh, with a colleague of mine, and we were essentially trying to um, to make money consistently for for our clients, but found it uh, really really hard to to do so. And uh, really by coincidence, uh, the futures broker that we were using um, back then. Um, told us that basically they had a little group. Uh, this was a big shop, but they had a little group, maybe 15, 20 people, um, doing something called managed futures, where they were still trading futures, but they were actually managing money using futures. And so they had a track record that they could show. And uh, we started having a look at this and found it uh, very interesting, very appealing. Um, and uh, certainly they did a better job than we we did. So we kind of slowly uh, moved in that direction and started uh, working with them, um, essentially promoting their products in Scandinavia to investors. And that was really my start. So we're talking about sort of uh, very early 1990s. It's really my uh, uh, inroads to the managed futures or CTA slash trend following world where I've kind of got stuck there for the past uh, 28 years. So, uh, <laughs> so must be so, a good place to be. <laughs> so, well, I, you know, that's funny because it's certainly, uh, I think it, it's one of those investment strategies that everybody, uh, you know, either love or hate or, or you know, and, and so it's, it's never an easy strategy to work with, I would say. But for me, at least, I think it's one of the most, if not the most dependable and consistent strategy because it hasn't really changed over that many years. And, and that's what I like about it. It's not, you know, uh, a fly on the wall that works for five years and then it's gone. It's, it's really something that um, has a um, wonderful ability to uh, continue to um, yeah, make money over time, but, but certainly not every year. Niels, so, for the benefit of, of listeners who may not be familiar with the approach, could you just give us a, a, a sort of a, a, a ten, view from 10,000 feet view of um, what trend following, systematic trend following actually is. Absolutely, Tim. So, I mean, I think all investors, deep down, we're all trend followers in some way. So at least most of us, because we, we buy something in the hope that it's going to go higher and then we can sell it again. So we're looking for a price move, a directional price move, uh, or vice versa. We sell something in the hope that we can buy it back cheaper. And you know, depending on how your time frame is, you can define that as a trend, it, whether it's a short term trend or it's a long term trend, doesn't really matter. So what the trend following community really came up with back in the 70s uh, was really that they found that if you define some rules and these rules don't have to be that sophisticated and certainly they weren't very sophisticated back, back in the 70s. You have a much, much, and you apply these, I should say, and you apply these rules um, systematically and very, very disciplined. So even if you have 10 bad trades in a row, you, you don't sway away from your methodology if you believe in it and if you've done your research and you've tested it, that it should work over time. So for, so what these trend followers found was if you apply rules and follow them, uh, you know, consistently, uh, there's a much higher probability of making money over time than just trying to 
use our emotions and our best guesses to uh, forecast what what markets going to do. I mean, as we all know, predicting the future is very hard to do. So trend followers um, are not predicting anything. They analyze only, for the most part, at least only one thing, and that's historical prices. And based on those prices, we formulate rules. And they could be simple rules like, for example, the simplest rules really is something like, okay, if the price of a market goes above the, the last 30-day uh, high, that could be an indication that the market's going to continue to go up and you start buying it. And then you can have 35-day high and 40-day high. And these principle, in, interestingly enough, something as simple as that was really was taught to a group of traders back in the 80s. It so this is, this, sorry, this is the story of the turtles, isn't it? Yeah, it, be, it became known as the story about the turtles, but essentially it was, it was ordinary people with very different backgrounds that were taught the basic rules of trend following. And many of them uh, went on to become very successful. And that's what I like about it. It's really a strategy that we can all learn, but I'm not saying necessarily that we can all be successful at it because I do think that it requires certain human um, skills that we not that not everyone has um, to to uh, to make it in that business. Well, you mentioned some very important points there. I think first of all, one was that um, when you first started out looking at trend following and uh, you decided that it was a way forward for you, what was it about it that, that attracted you? Because of course, with trend following, and I'm I'm a big advocate of that because I come from a technical analysis background. Uh, started out in the 90s and I've read the Market Wizards book that Richard sure. Dennis was involved with and, and uh, you know, absolutely loved that, really spoke to me. Um, but what was it about you that it that helped you stay through the drawdowns, which are inevitable? Sure. So, I mean, I think what, what initially attracted me to it was basically performance. Um, I came across a magazine that was published back then called Managed Account Reports, and that listed on a monthly basis, uh, you know, the performance of, back then there weren't that many managers, but, you know, the performance of managers. And and you could see these weird names that you had no idea, uh, you know, who was behind, um, but you could see their performance and their track records were, you know, they were one, they were, you know, they were public. So, so you could actually see how well they they did, and um, and 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 for me at least, it 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 just looked interesting. And then I started looking into it. What does it really mean? And for me, it's always made sense because as a original, as a bond trader, you you or even if you traded equities or other assets, you know that markets don't just go one way. And the whole basis of trend following is that we don't care what way the markets are going. We because we trade futures, we have the ability to make money on the upside as well as the downside. And so that in itself uh, appealed to me. Why would you restrict yourself in a strategy where you could only make money uh, when markets were going up? And you're absolutely right, Paul. I mean, there are drawdowns and some of them have been quite severe in, um, in, in these uh, track records, but I see it in two ways. One, a 50% 50, a 50 drawdown for a CTA or trend follower uh, well, that's that's really hard to handle, but we also have to remember that equity markets they also go down by fifty percent. That's happened twice in the last eighteen years, so these things do happen. And Buffett did the say other, as well, actually, that if stocks go down by fifty percent, and you actually it could have been Charlie Munger, is that right, Tim? He said if yeah, think, it's, it's, Mung, it's Munger's point, and, and, and Munger's quite he sounds quite hard nosed about this, and he doesn't express it very diplomatically, but he says if you're unwilling or unable to accept those kind of drawdowns, then basically you deserve the mediocre returns you're going to get by not investing in the stock market. So sure. it's all it's all part and parcel of the, the approach. But just just to make clear, because I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, we, we are big users of trend following funds within our own business. And I think, I mean, I would describe, uh, I would personally describe trend following funds as the best kept secret in finance, because particularly at the level of the retail investor in the UK, um, almost nobody is willing or able to market to them. The, the way the industry is configured and the way the regulation works, it's very difficult to, 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 to put trend following funds in front of the, the sort of the typical individual investor. But the, the, the nature of the returns is, is unbelievable. Um, a friend of mine, Chris Clark, mutual friend, because I think, I think uh, Paul, you know him as well, Chris Clark, who, who certainly has been involved in trend following funds for a number of years, he put together a list of basically the best funds in history. 
So the, 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 the criteria he used were, firstly, the fund in question needed to have a 20-year, at least a 20-year track record. And secondly, and that itself makes them comparatively rare because there aren't that many managers who've been sustainedly in the same business for that long. And secondly, that, that those funds or those businesses needed to have generated on average a 20% per annum return. Now, combine the, track re- the, the length of the track record with that track record, and it's an almost invisibly small universe. There were, I think, 11 funds that, that, that basically made that, that shortlist. And to put it into context, Berkshire Hathaway, which isn't strictly a fund, was at the bottom of that list. So it just squeaked in. But of those 11 funds, six of them were trend-following funds. And I find that just uh, is an incredible statistic. Yeah. I mean, you touched on a good point, Tim. I mean, it is true that it has been very difficult for, um, you know, individual investors to participate in, in these strategies. And, and, and it's a shame because, frankly, those are the people who probably needed the most. Right. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, uh, and I think this has been well you know, documented uh, by many of these superstar uh, investors that we all hear about, uh, maybe not so much Buffett, but certainly someone like a Ray Dalio. I mean, the secret to long-term wealth building and the secret to success in this industry is asset allocation and diversification. And, and this is important because this is where a lot of people go wrong. So they think the trend following is something you can learn by reading a book and then you just apply it to the S&P and you're going to be successful, you know, by tomorrow. That's the problem. The problem is that trend following really only works if you have a fully diversified portfolio. Yeah. And, um, and, and so... So, so I think that there is this, uh, people hear the stories and they see the books, um, some of them even written by people who've never really been a trend follower themselves, but, but, you know, it, it gets a bad rap because it's often sold to the public in the completely wrong way. Yeah. And it's also often sold as a hedge to equities. It's, it's not a hedge. It's an uncorrelated return stream. And there's a big difference. Now it is true that it tends to do well when equities are in trouble, but it's just not, you know, exactly the same as saying it's a hedge. So, yes. so what you're doing today in terms of helping people to better understand this space and allowing them, uh, you know, uh, to 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 see it maybe from the less hypey side, I think is is you know is a great service to investors. It doesn't. I mean, it has become much better. There are usage funds today that everyone can participate in. Um, some of them may be still a little bit too expensive, but it is becoming easier for investors to. Uh, participate in trend following today i would say so there's the trade there's the turtlerules.org which i remember seeing in the 90s and um it gives you a breakdown to what the turtle traders were actually doing and and the the rules that they followed and they were relatively very simple um but i i i wondered how the rules have changed since then what what's how have we needed to update those rules given that the markets have basically stayed the same and those rules should still apply. Well, I mean, uh, so a couple of things to that. I, I actually had an interview uh, with uh, both Richard Dennis and some of his turtles. Um, Fantastic. And, yeah, and, and, and that was very interesting to hear. And we did talk about, you know, would the rules apply? And, and of course, they would in some sense. But I do think it's fair to say that Trend following back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you know, were successful, uh, but would but they probably wouldn't be as successful today. Uh, meaning you have to evolve. And I can see what we do at Don as, as an example of that. I mean, Bill Don, our founder, started the firm in 1974 with a pretty simple uh, way of doing trend following, uh, also referred to as as a breakout methodology, mm-hmm. uh, very similar to the turtles uh, in in some ways, but but not exactly the same. And we've really evolved in the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, you know, so this is a small part of what we do. We found better ways, in our opinion, to do trend following, and I think that's the key. Uh, that you know, a lot of these rules that are publicized, they're the old rules. So people think, oh, but that's great. I'll just uh, do what it says in, in book on page 98. Uh, but, and then it doesn't work. And I think it's partly because, the I mean, we clearly know the markets in the last 10 years have been different than previously. I mean, all the intervention from central banks have certainly have an impact. And trend following as an industry, frankly, hasn't done so well. 
uh, and of course that drags out all the uh, all the all the pundits saying, "Well, trend following is dead." I think that's a little bit too early to 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 make that claim. It's never dead. Um, it can never it's be nev- dead. It, exactly because, because the it's based always, on human behavior. Yes, yeah, the market's always exactly. trend. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, the way the way I've I've tried to describe this is, which I, I think I like to think is fair, is that for as long as the markets are guided or driven by human emotions like greed and fear, there will always be a role for trend following. Yeah, I think I think certainly that there is. Uh, I mean, again, we have to distinguish between financial markets, which can be somewhat controlled and manipulated, and then you have the commodities, which you know, are very, very difficult to control and manipulate. Um, so, uh, and this is why I, I, I say that it's so important for people who want to be a trend follower or who want to invest in trend following, that they find someone that is fully diversified. And I, and I frankly, what we see happening in Europe at the moment with headlines of some very famous trend followers reducing their exposure to, to that strategy, uh, people make, I think, the the, the wrong conclusion about it. I don't think they're saying it's not going to work, no. but it may not work for them and their business right now because of other things. Um, because, I mean, we can certainly see on our side that that actually our returns in the last five and a half years on average are actually better than they have been in the previous 40 years. So 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 we're a testament that, that, that that's not the case, but you have to evolve. That's clear. To put some flesh on the bone, um, I mean, I, I was amazed. Uh, I, I think this part of the problem is is potentially one of size. That the, the bigger you get, and this is a problem with, across all fund management, the yeah. bigger you get, the that that's an anchor to performance. I was amazed to to hear that there was a, a futures market for milk, for example. I didn't know it existed, but clearly it's so small that if you're a big fund, you can't play in it. Yeah. So, I mean, what to put some flesh on the bone? What what markets does Dunn trade in? So we are we so we trade a total of fifty four markets, and I would say about fifty to sixty percent, uh, closer to sixty percent, they are financial markets because there's quite a few of them. You have the interest rates, you have the long bonds, you have currencies, you have equity indices, and and that's important to participate uh, in that. But then the other forty percent are the commodity markets, and they really are, uh, say, twenty twenty five commodity markets that first of all, have been around longer than the financial futures. That's important for people to, to realize that the futures markets didn't start with financial markets. They started with commodities. The, so very, that, the very earliest was rice. Is that correct? Is that um, Japanese I'm, rice market? It could well be. It could well be. I think in the U.S., certainly the grains were one of the first markets that were traded for sure. Um, and so... So, so we do trade all the major uh, commodities as well, whether it be in the grain sector, uh, whether it be in the energy sector, the metals, of course, uh, and then some of the smaller markets uh, like meats, uh, you know, are, are, are pretty interesting as well. I think the main thing for, for us as a, as a manager is to realize how big can we become before we're too big for a market. And if you want to be fully diversified, and that is our wish, then we also know that there is a finite amount of money we can manage. And I think, I think many hedge funds and CTAs, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they, they get to that point where they have to make the decision. They have to make the decision about do we want to be really big or do we just want to focus on performance? And, and, and frankly, for us, it's a very simple decision because we don't make any money, none at all, unless we make money for our clients. So we only get paid a share of performance. We don't charge a management fee. So even whether we had 1 billion under management or 10 or 20, if we don't perform for our clients, we make no money for ourselves. So you've got skin in the game. That is a very important marker. Well, yeah, and it makes it very simple for us to make these decisions. And it also changes the way we think about research because we have no interest in adding models that just allow us to manage more money, but it reduces our return, as Tim rightly said. We really want to find something that maybe ideally can add performance, um, you know, uh, but certainly not detract from performance, but more importantly, perhaps, can reduce risk. So we focus a lot of our time in saying, how can we do this better, but better from a risk-adjusted point of view? Because that is one thing, kind of the Achilles heel of trend following has always been that we get these washouts from either a big trend reversal 
or from a period of no trends, yeah. that's when we have our drawdowns. And it's been very, very difficult uh, for the industry to deal with these two things. And I think investors have been told that you have to accept this. That's part of being invested in trend following. But what we found about five years ago is that actually there is a better way of doing it. And and so we focused really on how we exit markets to avoid these big washouts when markets reverse. And we spent a lot of time finding better ways of managing risk. So you don't run at full risk when there are no trends to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that. Uh, and that's obviously also part of why uh, I mentioned that you have to keep evolving to 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 stay ahead in, in this strategy, like you have to do with so many other things, of course. So I'm really interested in your trading secrets, but I know you're not going to do that because, of course, they <laughs> are trading secrets. But ultimately, I'm, you know, I am intrigued as to how things have changed. And you're alluding to the change. And I know you probably can't explicitly say how it's happened. But I'm, I'm thinking, and tell me if I'm in the right ballpark here, that you're your analysis has been not so much with the trading signals, which should be relatively, you know, static or simple, but perhaps with the correlations, because ultimately, from what I can see with trend following, what you don't want to be caught out with is being too correlated with all the markets that you're trading. You want them to be almost inverse, well, not almost, inversely correlated so that you're not simply adding a position to, say, market X when market Y you already have a position. So in fact, all you're doing is increasing your risk to market Y. Yeah. So, I mean, that's absolutely right in in, in, in many ways. So I think when it comes to risk management, I think correlations uh, play a big role and we certainly use that. And that's been one of the discoveries uh, that we found uh, when we look at our own sort of overall risk management is that how do we use that kind of information um, you know, how correlated, uh, you know, is the portfolio and the markets that we are involved in at any given time. And and using that information constructively has certainly helped us uh, become much more agile in the way we uh, set our risk budgets on a daily basis, um, rather than in the old days, and, and I think a lot of people still do, where they essentially have a certain volatility or valued risk target that they adhere to every single day, which is the camp we used to be in prior to making these discoveries. Interesting. The, the problem with that is uh, that uh, you you often end up uh, even in a, in a for example in a low volatility environment, um, you know, gearing up your portfolio, thinking that it's safe to do so, uh, and then you realize when it's too late that actually uh, there was much more risk involved mm-hmm. uh, in the markets and from correlations, for example, than than you expected. So I would say that's one thing. But the other thing, actually, going back to your point about the signals, no, I do think you need to look at the signals because if you, as a trend follower, like any investor, really, we have three main decisions to make, and that is when do we enter the market. Where do we exit the market and how much risk do we take? So I don't think trend follows as, a, as an industry, certainly the, the better ones. I don't think that anyone really has an edge as to identify better when a trend starts. Because when a trend starts, it's fairly simple to see. You can just look at a chart and you know where it started. Exactly. But 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 the two other parts, the risk management, I think, is is very important. And that sets one trend follower apart from another. But probably the most important thing we do is the exit, because the exit defines how much of the trade or the profit, ideally, we can extract from the trend. Very and so, so I think that's where uh, much more work can be done. And that's where we've done a lot of work to really improve our, our uh, signals so that we don't necessarily have to wait until the price starts moving against us. And we end up giving back a lot of the profits that we have made potentially. Now that's what normal or the the classical trend following uh, systems would do. And I think that's been much harder in, in, in the recent sort of five, 10 years to, to just follow that approach. I think you have to evolve and I think the signal in itself still is something that needs to be improved upon because you can use that information when it comes to your exits. Just sorry, just to be clear, Niels, do you use any discretion at all in your process, or is everything driven by uh, pre predefined rules? Right. So once things have been, uh, you know, gone through the research process, 
then everything is fixed and the system runs without any discretionary input. The only thing that, you know, where the discretion happens, it's in the research process because we try different things. And that's obviously based on, you know, news that we hear about or publications we read or ideas we come across in some way or another. So that's where the, but that's where we can test different things. And, and that's obviously influenced by the researcher working on a project uh, to some extent, but the process of doing the research is very disciplined and we don't sway away from that. And then of course, once we have the rules, we've tested them, we've tried them on our own money first, so we don't risk any clients before we know it works. Then it goes into uh, the client portfolios and from there on, everything is is fully, uh, you know, rule-based and, and systematic. The, the amazing thing about trend following is, for me, is, so I mentioned that, that Chris Clark, who's, who is a, a trend following trader, um, and it was the revelation when, when Chris said to me that he, he could, on the basis of technical analysis, i.e. The, the, the historic price, the, the price chart, he would be happy to trade a market even though he didn't even know what the market was. So in other words, you just showed him the, 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 the price chart, he would say, okay, given that my understanding, my interpretation of that price chart, I would, I would go long at a certain level, I would take profits at a certain level, I would go short at a certain level without even knowing what that instrument is. And when you first experience that, that's like, that's heresy. Mm. But it's it's maybe why it, it's maybe why for those people who are sufficiently open minded, trend following has a, a, an innate appeal as a, as a strategy. That's actually quite funny because I, I work with Chris Clark and we um, Chris was very much a fundamental trader. And it, it was I convinced him into technical analysis. Um, oh, you're 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 to blame. <laughs> I'm to blame. Yeah, yeah. Chris was Chris was very much a technical uh, a fundamental trader, and I I, I had. It took me a long time to convince him. Um, he actually went on my course uh, to learn about technical analysis. And it was there that, that I showed him, look, I, I went through a chart and I said, look, what's going to happen next? And, you know, let people have a go at predicting it. And then then I told them, right, what have you done here? You've looked at a chart and you've actually predicted it better than you would have done had you had all the information about this market. And you don't even know which market it is. And it was at that point that I, I, you know, I sparked his interest in in all things technical. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, that's why I, actually I love the story of Chris and and, and trading in, in uh, you know, in the markets because he went really from being totally against it to actually making it part of his his life. And I think that was, it's a great example of, of many people that I've, I've spoken to who were very much involved in economics and said, you know, I, it's got technicals is all reading tea leaves and stuff like that, who've completely done a 180 degree. So it's, it's, it's a lack of information and understanding about what markets are, what reading price action is um, that, and the fact that the media is so geared up towards economic information and news flow that ultimately doesn't have anything at all to do with investing principles, which is why well, the way, trend following yeah, works. The way, the way I describe it, and we've, we've touched on it uh, innumerably uh, in the past, is, is narrative fallacy, that people love stories, they like to believe in stories, and they think that given sufficient information, they can determine the future. And of course, it's all nonsense. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, of course, we all know that you can't really predict the future. I mean, you can be lucky and you can get it right a few times and, and so on and so forth. But what's also interesting, you mentioned the statistics about the funds and, and how 11 of them had only fulfilled or the criteria and so on and so forth. But actually, you can go a step uh, further and you can look at the really successful funds. And if we stay in the alternative space sort of the hedge fund space, if you look at them today, I would say that all of them are systematic. You don't really find a discretionary manager that has a long, you know, 20, 30 year track record uh, and, and that is still, um, you know, on, on, on top of his game. It's, it's so hard to do. Uh, and, in, and with everything else in life, right, we're very happy to use automation. I mean, if you go on a plane and you fly from London to New York, you wouldn't really want the pilot to sit and hold the stick for seven hours, right? You would want some automation to help you out. And trading is no different. I mean, it's not the machines who decide what to do. We do that, but we ask the machines to help us once we've decided, can you implement this for us in an easier way than us having to make the calculations by hand every day? So... You know, 
being systematic is is definitely uh, you know the way forward uh, in 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 my opinion. I think you made some excellent points there, Niels. First of all, I wanted to go back to your. Um, point about your exit strategy being very important and the fact that you've met the man Richard Dennis I have to ask you you know can you tell us anything about him because in the technical analysis and trend following world you know he's like the Warren Buffett and it would be great to to hear about what what he's actually like as a person if there's anything you can share about him sure so so i the so the conversation i had with 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 uh with richard and 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 his uh, two turtles were actually done uh you know over the internet so i haven't met richard in person but but you know spending time with him talking um you know he's a very humble man uh, to be frank that's nice uh, to hear. that was my that was my uh, and he was very a, a, a very you know, very honest. I mean, there's been a lot of stories about, uh, you know, the, the the story of the turtle experiment, how that even came about and how it was a bet between him and his partner. But actually, there was no bet. No, Sorry. really? And, 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 oh, my and, God. And it was it was more like... My whole, you know, my whole world is now crumbling. Yeah, I know, I know. Eyes. But it was more like, <laughs> as he explained it, he said, it was more like him saying, oh, I bet you can teach people this. Wasn't a real bet, and actually, and this is uh, documented in the conversation I had with them on 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 my own podcast. And that is, he came up with the idea while sitting in Sunday afternoon drinking scotch. Wow! <laughs> I mean, That's so brilliant. It's and and so 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 uh, yeah. So so this is this is. I mean, he's a. Uh, He's an amazing uh, trader, and and it was a uh, you know great privilege to to have a conversation like this because obviously he's never really wanted to be in the spotlight yes. about it, um, and I think he also, um, in fairness, uh, maybe have not enjoyed people writing so much about uh, this story uh, without having even spoken to him, uh, you know, and or or having his permission to do so. So. You know, so but I, I found it fascinating. Um, you know, brilliant to talk to, and uh, you can learn a lot from from people like that. For people who may be not familiar with the turtles, they they were the group of people who were given the rules to trade under Richard Dennis as part of this what we thought was a bet, but it was just really just an exercise. In it, it, you know, from what you've said, he was just wondering whether you could do it. Um, yeah, and. Uh, the, the traders that did well did extremely well. They ended up setting up their own funds. And um, the, the what differentiated one trader from another was the ability to follow the rules. And that was that was the point. Rules you don't follow don't matter, they say. And when you were told to buy a 30-day high, if you started to think, well, maybe it's a bit toppy here and perhaps I should wait – the ones who actually followed the rules properly and did not use any of their own sort of instincts, which were working against them, um, which tends to happen with new traders uh, until you've developed your instincts. The, the ones who followed the rules did well and the ones that didn't obviously stopped trading. And, and that's what it boils down to, getting the right set of rules and then following them. But I, I'm absolutely amazed and I think this is a fantastic um, endorsement for you for your company, um, Niels, for how you actually trade your own capital in the testing phase, not even in the actual implementation phase. So that that's very unusual. I've never heard of that before. Well, well, we we do both, right? So so we want to risk our own capital before we risk our clients' capital because we want to make sure that what we found actually works the way we expect it to. And you can't, I mean. There's never been a bad backtest in the history, right? So, so everything you do in research looks great. Yes. So you have to try and put some real money, um, you know, behind it and and trade it for a while. But, 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 but even to a greater, much, much, much greater extent, we of course uh, invest alongside our clients uh, in the live uh, accounts. Uh, so, uh, you know, as a group, uh, founders and owners and employees of 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 done are, you know, the largest group of investors uh, still, uh, even though as we grow as a company, of course, we may not always be that, but there's significant amount of capital from our side invested along with our clients. So it's skin in the game on both sides, right? We want to, we only want to be paid if we do a good job and we create value for our clients, but we also want to participate in a strategy that we truly believe in. So, uh, so we do both. So how far back do you go in your backtesting if you're allowed to share that information? Because it's, as you rightly say, you could go back 
say, five years, and that's not necessarily enough. And you could go back 20 years, and again, that's not necessarily enough because you may have a crisis just around the corner. Yeah. How, how do you solve that? Or, or what, what's the least worst option for that? Sure, sure. So, I mean, so ideally you want to go back as far as possible, but realistically you're also limited about uh, how long a certain markets have even been in existence, right? So so there is a natural limit uh, right now where, you know, the first liquid futures markets started really when we started trading in the 70s, but a lot of them came on uh, much later in life and then you can't go back much further than that. So it's probably around 25, 30 years right now where we can go back and 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 do our research um, and um, but you know it, it's it's still enough in a sense because we also have one thing that a lot of people don't have and that is we have the practical experience of 45 years of doing this so so that gives us a lot of data as well but if yes. you're a medium to long term trend follower like we are you know sometimes you don't get a lot of signals in a market uh, you know in a year or two right so so you do you do need the longer time frames to to get enough trades um to 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 analyze um i mean that's one thing i learned very early on because i had the the privilege of working for perhaps the most successful of the turtles jerry parker i worked for for him back in the uh, 90s oh, and wow. uh, and he always kept saying that you know you want to trade as many markets and and as many t different time frames because it's really the number of trades that helps you build your data set um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is important, uh, for sure. One, one question I was going to ask Niels, I mentioned earlier the sort of narrative fallacy that I think is, is a, a problem across financial media or across media. Um, this is the personally, the most difficult thing we find when we're using trend following funds with our clients. It's very, very difficult to provide a narrative for when funds aren't necessarily performing particularly well and you can say well there are insufficient strong trends but that that's kind of sounds a bit sort of wishy-washy do you yeah. have the same problem that it's difficult to i mean if, if the stock market's not going up everyone acknowledges what, what that's about but if a, a trend following fund isn't generating say particularly good returns it's it's kind of difficult to provide a, a convincing narrative as to why why the fund's not performing do you find that's a problem yeah, I wouldn't say I, I, I would go as far as say it's not just kind of difficult, it's really difficult. Um, and uh, so one of the things that I did with uh, a former colleague of mine was uh, we actually came up with a visualization of trend strength in different markets. And we call it the trend barometer. And actually, it, it's um, it's it's something that we can share with 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 people uh, to visualize whether there are lots of trends around or whether there are fewer trends around. And I think it helps. I'm not saying it's the the ultimate solution, but I do think you have to visualize for people uh, because they don't want to sit and look at different charts and saying, oh, yeah, okay, I can see why soybeans are not uh, trending at the moment. So, I mean, they don't have time for that and they may not have the interest in doing so. So you need to find something much simpler in order to uh, visualize this. And I also think that maybe as an industry, we still haven't done a, a good enough job in, in educating people. Uh, and sometimes I think we make it more uh, complex than it really is because it sounds uh, smarter. Uh, and, but I just think we're doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, trend following really isn't that difficult. It's difficult to do consistently. And of course, today you need to use uh, more sophisticated rules. Um, but deep down, uh, the concept of trend following, of course, buying when markets go up and selling when markets sell, going short when markets go down, I think that's a concept everyone can understand. The problem is that there are so many other strategies. I don't think necessarily it's the narrative itself that's the problem. The problem is that we as humans have a bias towards something that looks stable, looks safe, and still produces a return. And that's probably the complete opposite of trend following. It looks, well, you know, it looks risky. Uh, it's not stable. Um, and it only makes money um, a few months every year. And that in itself is really hard. So the reason why we at Don started looking much more about how can we package this strategy that we, we love and we know it works? How can we make that better uh, in terms of a risk-adjusted profile? Because what, what, what investors 
the reason why investors don't get enough out of their trend-following investments when they do finally convince themselves to do it is that they end up getting nervous at the wrong time and they sell the investment you know, when it's in a drawdown. And then they get excited when it's just made money after like 2008. Everybody realized, oh, we do need trend-following because it makes money when everything else doesn't. So they buy it. So they end up actually becoming a trend follower on trend following, and that's the worst thing you can do. So the way to overcome that really is to try and see how can we improve the risk-adjusted return, because that's one thing that trend following is not known for. It has a very low sharp ratio. And we know as humans, we prefer strategies with high sharp ratio where you make money every month and it looks safe. Okay, then once in a blue moon, you, you lose a lot. But we, but we forget about that part of it when we make the decision. So, so we really try and see how can we improve the risk-adjusted returns because then the probability of our clients staying with us for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years is so much higher. And then we know that they get the benefit of the investment strategy. And as a good example of that in terms of why long-term investment horizon is so important, someone told me, oh, I picked it up somewhere recently, and you guys, you may know about it, uh, that all of all the money Warren Buffett has made, and obviously that is billions of billions of dollars, 99% of it, or something like that, has been made by him after he turned 50. <laughs> so so, so all, all the years prior to turning 50, he, owned, he made good money, but it was a fraction of what it's accumulated to, because as he also says, and everybody knows, cumulated return effect over long periods of time, you know, is, is so significant. Yes. Yeah, the miracle, so, the, miracle, the miracle of compounding. Yeah, exactly, the compounding. So, so compounding is so important, and that's why you need to have this long uh, horizon. Take, take an example as, 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 as done. I mean, we've been around for 45 years. We're up about 100% in the last five and a half years. So only half, so you had you stopped five and a half years ago, you would only have made half the money that you would have made had you stayed another five and a half years. So it took us 40 years to get to half, only took us five years to get to the other half. That's brilliant. That's the effect. That's the effect. So there's a really, there's a really uh, terrific piece of research by research affiliates that I keep, keep citing. Um, it was done about two years ago. And they, they make, they, they crunch the data for the US markets going back 50 years. And on their analysis, the two strategies that are the most successful relative to the index are value and momentum. And I think mm. by momentum, you can broadly read trend following. Um, but the, 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 what, one of the amazing things about this is, is it, says, it says categorically, these are the things that, most, most, that generate most value. And they're also the strategies that are, particularly value is the one that's most likely to get you fired if you recommend it because of the drawdowns, because of the periods when it underperforms. And yeah. there's, a, there's a great... Uh, late value investor called Peter Kundal in, in Canada. And he said the, the requirements for success are patience, patience, and more patience. Mm. And then he said in, 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 in capital letters, the majority of investors do not possess this characteristic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your expression, by the way, Niels, of uh, you shouldn't be a trend follower of trend following. And that that's a recipe for underperformance, I think that's that's a brilliant expression because it it just shows that people will go in at the wrong time if they're just jumping into short term what they think are going to be gains and then obviously coming out when they think well this hasn't worked and they get out just at the wrong time. But an interesting uh, fact that that uh, that I learned about through a documentary very recently, and I was quite mm -hmm. surprised to hear was that had it not been for the bailout. Warren Buffett would not be around. It shows you that the trend followers made money in the most volatile and extreme conditions, yet even the great Warren Buffett himself would not be around had he not been bailed out. Yeah. But you're not relying on that as part of your investment strategy in order to be here for the next 100 years. No, I mean, I think that's, uh, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that uh, documentary and I'm not familiar with that study, um, uh, but but. Uh, but you've certainly seen it with, with other strategies. I mean, back in the 90s, uh, we had this firm called Long Term Capital, which yeah. everybody loved. And even central banks, I think, invested with them because they couldn't put a foot wrong, right? Is well, the, they did. I think it, was the cent it could have been the Bank of Italy or one of the Italian central right. banks, possibly, yeah. 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 And, 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 of course, they also had to be, even though the, the company went belly up, you could say, 
um, but but they had to bail them out, right? Yes. So so a lot of these strategies that looks safe, and this is one of my big talking points at the moment. I mean, I think people completely overestimate the, um, I mean, what they see as alpha by many strategies right now, I just think it's a short volatility bet. And so many strategies are reliant on this stable, uh, low vol environment that we've been in for the past 10 years. And the other thing they rely on is uh, heavily is the correlation between equities and bonds being predominantly negative, which it has been for the last 10 years. The problem with that is that that's not the way the long term picture looked like. In fact, if you go back 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, the correlation between bonds and equities are, for the most part, positive. So a lot of these strategies that, and 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 actually even Ray Dalio's uh, very, very successful sort of risk parity type uh, approach has only been around for 15 years. He'd only opened that to investors in 2003. So we have very little data on these strategies Yet the trend-following crowd that's been around for, you know, close to 50 years, um, people tend to discount uh, the, the value of the information you can extract from those track records. They just focus on what looks safe and, and, and what has made money, uh, you know, recently. And I, I, I fear that there are uh, a lot of surprises uh, ahead for, for, for those kind of strategies, unfortunately. Do you ever have a sense of, obviously you're going to be following your rules, but um, that there's going to be a change just from your intuitive um, feel of the markets, i.e. we're in a low vol environment at the moment. Do you, do you ever have any opinions that you, that you think, oh, you know, that I think this is going to change or this will be a, um, this is a good turning point? No, I mean, sure. I mean, so, so I always distinguish between, you know, if people ask me as a, as a human being or if they ask me as, as, as someone who represents trend following. I mean, with trend following, I truly believe in it. And I think everybody should have it in their portfolio as a, as a core allocation because of the, the way it helps uh, an overall portfolio. And, and I don't, you know, personally, I don't make investments other than I invest in, in our own strategy. So I don't do any, I, I don't, you know, uh, make bets in, in the markets for what I feel like. But I do have opinions because I've been watching these markets for 30 years. And and so if people ask me for, a, for an opinion, um, I would give it to them. But it could be right. It could be wrong. It's an educated guess. Uh, but of course, I mean, and I think overall, having been around for, for, for a few decades in, in this uh, industry, I, I do fear that uh, that there will be some changes that um, that people have forgotten about, and and we shouldn't forget that many investors, many traders, and many fund managers have themselves not even ex- been exposed to a crisis like two thousand eight, let alone the tech bubble. They've mm-hmm. they've also never they've never seen a period of rising interest rates. Exactly. So 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 uh, I mean, and and this is huge, right? Because deep down, these are people who make decisions based on, you know, emotions for the most part. Um, so so, uh, so th- once it happens, and I'm not predicting when it will happen, but, but what, when, it, when we see this regime change, and I think we're seeing the beginning of it because central banks have very different objectives at the moment, right? Europe, Japan, and U.S., three completely different mandates, uh, in my opinion. So, so the divergence between their policies are beginning to shine through. Uh, And that will create a much more of a global macro environment as we used to see prior to the crisis. Uh, But I think a lot of people have forgotten how that is and how you should act in that. I've got to ask you before we we wrap up the podcast about Bill Dunn himself, because he is an absolute legend, of course, as well. So, you know, in the same vein as as Richard Dennis, what, what can you tell us about the great man himself, Bill Dunn? No, I mean, I think uh, for for the people who have uh, met him, I think um, that one of the things that they uh, would say is that he's a man of of, of principles, integrity, uh, you know, always really from day one, always looked at everything uh, we do at Don from the investor's uh, point of view and incredibly disciplined. Um, I mean, I don't work in the offices, uh, you know, in, in, in the headquarter. I'm based in Europe. Um, but what my colleagues uh, uh, tells me is that you you can't really you can't sense the difference of whether we're having a good day or a bad day. There's no emotional reaction to that because over time you believe in your system, you believe in your process, and you know it's gonna 
it's going to do well for you. So, um, you know, so yeah, those are some of the things I would, uh, I would, I would highlight. He keeps his emotional, um, his emotions in check, basically, which is the sign of a very good trader. And this is why I said in the very beginning that even if you're given the rules, it may not be that trend following is something you can do successfully. And this is where the difference in, in personality comes in that most people, I would argue, probably don't have the right personality to be a trend follower. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it's very hard sometimes to acknowledge that maybe this is not for me, um, even if you're giving all the all the all the rules to do so. And this is why I I fear that a lot of people who uh, encounter trend following and want to try it out themselves, they have a bad experience. So so that you know so sometimes the done for you and I don't mean D U N N I just mean done for you solution where where you give your money to someone else who has experience in doing it and and where you don't have to worry about their discipline and all of those things can sometimes be a much much better solution than trying to do it yourself even though many investors of course love the action and love making the trades and all of that but it's 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 not it's not always that easy to to especially through the rough times right i mean when you're down 20% and you're still getting trades and you want to you know you, you you're sitting there should i take that trade or shouldn't i i mean those that those are the periods that are really difficult i mean to that point i think you're absolutely right that a lot of investors love drama they dramatize um things to an extent that just doesn't work there's a, there's a terrific story about a a value fund business in the states and someone was visiting the offices and they said um you know when i go to most brokers i can tell from the mood on the floor whether the market's up or whether the market's down when i go and visit you guys i can't even tell if the market's open or not <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think it's also very, I've always thought that it's a very interesting um, uh, element of Tim Price's approach, that he is a value investor, yet he sees the value in trend following. That's so unusual that, that, you, that you would cross, a, you would move across these different disciplines in this way and, and, and not have a closed mind to all the things that, that, that work. I guess you just have an open mind. Would that be correct? Or, or... Yeah, it, it, it is possible to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. It's true. I mean, it, it is, you know, uh, usually people are in one camp or the other. It's rare to meet someone like Tim who who kind of understands and, and, and accepts the, 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 you know, the value of both. Uh, that That's very unique. So if I, someone... think, I think, to, sorry, just to, to finish to that point, I mean, I think to, to be fair, it comes down to luck. I mean, I, it's funny because Niels mentioned. I think if, if if I remember correctly, Niels, you started out in the in the bond market. Yeah. I started out. I started out in the bond market. I'm I'm not involved in bonds now. I mean, we've actually got rid of our last bond holdings for clients, so we're no longer invested in debt in any real way at all. Because I think no, I think we can see the way that the future is going to develop. But the 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 thing I would say about the the credit markets is uh, it's a sort of long-standing bias of mine is that. When you get involved in bonds, and I ended up there by accident uh, as, as a bond salesman, when, you, when, you, when you're when sort of reared in um, the bond market, you get a sense of macro things, which was useful to me because I didn't have any economic training at all. Um, so you get a sense of things like inflation, interest rates and currencies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that you don't get, I suspect, if you start in the stock market, where it's, where it's literally people telling tales to each other all day long. <laughs> and so... The, the, the bond market helped from that perspective to give you a kind of sort of macro perspective. But the, the, the crucial thing was I was then lucky enough to meet people like Paul, to meet people like Chris Clark, um, who gave this perspective on, you know, there is another way of doing things. And that, that, that way was effectively technical or you can call it sort of you know, systematic trend following, however you want to describe it. Unless you have the good fortune to come across people like that. It, as I keep saying, I think you know trend following. The trend following approach is the best kept secret in finance. Unless you have the good fortune to come across people who are in, involved in the sector, it you'll never you'll never discover it. No, and that's fine. I mean, you know, that's great in in some ways. I um, mean, we don't want everyone to be uh, a trend follower uh, as as such. And I think it's fine to have uh, different. Uh, I, I really think also it comes down to personality. I, as, as I said before, I don't think trend following is for everyone uh, and their personality and, and, and vice versa with other strategies as well. Um, you know, so, but it's, it's interesting uh, the, the way you got involved with it, for sure. 
So if you were sitting or if you were a listener listening to, to this um, and you had to give, be, give that person advice as to how they would get involved in trend following the, the right way, what, what would you do? Where, where, would you, where would you tell them to, what books would you, you read or where would you go? Well, I mean, there, there clearly are uh, different books that's been written on uh, on trend following, and then this is this is really not a plug, but because I had no idea you're going to ask me this, but uh, I made a a free ebook that uh, is a compilation of of trading books. Fantastic. So it's just a it's just a compilation where yeah. people can see. I think there's 30 different books, and they're not all on trend following, but they're like on systematic trading and so on and so forth. And um, so some of those books would be useful. Some of them uh, might resonate with people. And uh, so that's one way of, 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 of doing it. Um, now, of course, there are the, the popular books that, that, that would, uh, you know, that they're out there. And uh, some of them are very entertaining and, and interesting, um, but it may not give the sort of the full picture of, of, of that. But I think it's down to, interest and, and doing your research. Another thing I would just say, like, like, uh, like you're doing today, I think there's a lot of great podcasts out there on, 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 on this subject as well, where people can get a sense for, for what it's about. Uh, but I wouldn't call the bank and ask if they've ever heard about trend following. No, indeed, get a, get a indeed. good reply there. I would, I would make a mention in dispatches to, to Michael Cavell's uh, site, trendfollowing.com. That's I, think, source, yeah. I, think, I think Michael Cavell is a great ambassador for the trend-following world. Yes, yeah, indeed. Absolutely. I've got his book. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. 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 Excellent. So, and you also do your own podcast, Niels. That, that's good to hear. I didn't know that, so I'm going to be subscribing to that. You'll, ha you'll have to send us the link to the PDF um, of all the books and the link to your podcast so we can share it with our listeners. That, that's, that would be my pleasure, of course. Thank you. Well, just to... Just to wrap things up, um, we also asked for a media pick from each of our guests, and uh, I'm going to ask Tim for his while you have a think about yours. But uh, Tim, have you got a media pick for us? I I do. Um, I'm I feel a little bit awkward any time <laughs> I reference every time I reference the Guardian because oh, I I hate it with a passion. And I wish it was dead. But that said, every so often it throws up an absolute peach. Um, and there's a uh, you have a love hate really, relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, I have a. It's mostly hate, hate. It's mostly hate, hate, love, hate. Um, <laughs> but there is an absolutely belting piece I came across today. Um, how TripAdvisor changed travel, uh, which is a fairly recent piece by someone called Linda Kinstler from the Guardian. Um, but it, it, the the thing I will share, which is it, 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 the whole thing is worth worth reading. We can clearly put a link to it when we uh, when we put the podcast up. But the, it says that. You may have seen the film Grand Budapest Hotel, which yes. is possibly Wes Anderson's finest work, but it's a fictional hotel. The Grand Budapest Hotel has 358 reviews on TripAdvisor and a rating of 4.5, despite amazing. the fact it doesn't actually exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Love it. Um, well, mine is, the, uh, is a book that a, a very good friend of mine recommended that actually he recommended i just download the free taster from kindle which was which was good enough actually for me um of this book called attack of the 50 foot blockchain which is another take on the whole cryptocurrency space um from someone who's basically just ranting and giving the other side of it and I, it was very entertaining made some interesting points didn't necessarily agree with all of them but some of them i, I thought were very good points well made about the uh, the downsides of, of cryptocurrency. So put a link to that and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that too. So Niels, what, what have you got for us? Have you got something that you'd like to share? It, it doesn't have I to mean, be market related, by the way. It can be anything. Right, right, right. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are a lot of great uh, books and resources. And, and just since I didn't really know you were doing this, but I think one book that I came across recently, uh, I haven't read all of it, but I do think it is worth uh, certainly reading uh, part of it. And that is Ray Dalio's book, Principles. I do think that that gives a, a very interesting insight to uh, not just his thinking, but actually systematic thinking in general. Mm. And uh, I think that's valuable. But I would say another resource that that I like, it's not a book, and, and unfortunately it's a, it's a paid subscription, uh, but I think the guys at Real Vision uh, do a great job in interviewing some, uh, you know, very interesting people. 
um, and they give a different context to what is going on in the world than the traditional uh, news media do. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen some of their stuff and I find it uh, refreshing and interesting. And, and from time to time, you come across some, some really cool information that uh, where you sit back and say, wow, I didn't know that. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely check that out. Actually, you're not the first to recommend Real Vision, so that that's a really good endorsement. Thank you. Yeah. So just once again, Niels, thank you so much for your thoughts. It's been an absolutely brilliant podcast. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed your time. And thanks again, Tim, also. Thank Niels, you. absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much, guys. That's really kind. Thank you. Thanks again. And hope to, hopefully we'll have you on again very soon. Yeah. Brilliant. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional.